Hey guys, Nathan here. As always, want to tell you that we appreciate you listening to the Equipping Podcast. And also wanted to take a minute before this episode begins to let you know that over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about doctrine and especially the doctrine that surrounds the Bible or bibliology. Now, the reason I want to take a minute and talk to you about this on the front end is because inevitably, like every single time that I talk about this with a group of people, somebody gets their cage rattled. (laughs) So I just want to encourage you to listen closely. A lot of the things that we're going to be saying are nuanced, but I firmly believe that these nuances are actually really critical for the life and health of the church and for maintaining an orthodox Christian doctrine. So... I hope you always have your thinking cap on when you're listening to these, but I'm encouraging you to uh, make sure that that thing is tightly secured on your head. (laughs) As always, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. We'd love to interact with you. Until then, here you go. Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I am here with my co-host, Karen Henson. Hey yo, hey yo. What you doing? I'm sitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be really honest with what I'm currently doing. Yeah, that's good. Way to yeah. sit on the floor. Thank you. Hey, uh, today we are going to have a really great conversation with one of my mentors and just a longtime friend, Dr. Dan Wallace who is a professor down at Dallas Seminary and also runs an organization called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. So of all of the people that I know who know the Bible and care about the Bible and work with the Bible and (laughs) just do stuff in the Bible, he is pretty much at the top of that list. So today we are going to talk about bibliology, which is the study of the Bible and everything that that entails. So you guys enjoy this episode. Today, I am pumped to have a longtime mentor and friend of mine in the studio with us, Dr. Dan Wallace, who is a professor, a New Testament professor at Dallas Seminary. He has a much longer title that I forgot, so I apologize. Yeah, me but, too. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but has been really instrumental in my life and has been a longtime mentor and friend, and uh, we're just excited to have him in the studio to talk about doctrine and how we think about God and how we formulate how we think about God. So Dan, thanks for being here, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, Nathan. Today, let's talk about doctrine. So a lot of times people will hear the word doctrine and probably the first thing that comes to their mind is kind of an ivory tower type mentality of, oh, doctrine. Sometimes that word can have a connotation or have a feel around it that's more cold, academic, intimidating sometimes um, people feel when they hear a word like that. But, but when properly understood, like all of us have a doctrine when understood properly. And so why don't you just start by telling us what is doctrine? And on the tail end of that, we'll start talking about how do we come up with the things that we believe doctrinally? But for now, let's just start with what is doctrine? Doctrine has to do with a set of beliefs that one has on important, we could call them metaphysical issues. Although doctrine is also used, there's military doctrine, right. there's political yeah. doctrine, yeah. things like that. But those are basic principles that you follow or set of uh, set of beliefs. Doctrine, when it comes to 
Christianity has to do with what do you believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the nature of mankind, about the past, about the future, all these uh, issues about angels. There's traditionally 10 different categories that we plug these things into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to to like systematize it, basically. And yeah, I think it's good for our listeners here to hear us say the word doctrine is not a specifically theological one. I mean, like you mentioned, when I was in the military, they have military doctrine. (laughs) Like, this is what we think and believe about this. Um, So really, that's why I would say when you're using words like doctrine or a theologian or something like that, like everybody on some level is a theologian. Everybody on some level has a doctrine. It's just is it a good one or not? Or not? <laughs> I think is is a better question. Exactly. People say, I don't want to think about doctrine. Well, you do. Yeah. You just don't systematize mm. it. Yeah. What is your view of God? Is yeah. he a, a big green monster sitting on the moon? Mm-hmm. Or is he sovereign over the universe or somewhere in between? Your thoughts about God are doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. So help us understand some different ways that people construct this doctrine. How do they prioritize it? How do they form it? Where does it come from? Help us understand. Well, uh, historically, when the, the church began, it started to formulate views, especially about Jesus Christ. And we have uh, ancient universal councils, that is, church councils. They represented all the churches uh, essentially in the world. And these universal councils came up with precise statements as to who Jesus is, what the Trinity is, things like that. Uh, the um, Nicene Council, the first one in A.D. 325, was very important for defining the deity of Christ. Then you get the Council of Constantinople in uh, 381, and then uh, Chalcedon in 425, all these in roughly the same area in in, uh, Turkey. Then you had some more councils that came after that. They essentially were trying to define who is Jesus and what is the Trinity. Those were the fundamental things that preoccupied the Mm -hmm. church at the time. Mm -hmm. Another common misconception that I get, especially doing apologetics, is people have this idea that they just got together and decided this stuff, which is a a common misconception. Yeah, it's a a Um, pretty, I don't want to call it a stupid idea. I'll do it. It's a stupid idea. It's it's an ignorant uh, notion. Yeah, Yeah, they they wrestled with what Scripture said about God and Christ and, and the Holy Spirit. And so as they're coming up with these constructs, they're trying to satisfy all the data. There's a a book by Alistair McGrath called The Genesis of uh, Doctrine, I think is the name of the book. And he talks about how the deposit of revelation is ultimately the scripture. Mm -hmm. Now, we do get revelation, natural revelation in the world, in our conscience and history, things like that. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate deposit of revelation is found in scripture. We cannot invent more revelation what we can do is interpret and systematize it. Yep. And in his book on the Genesis of Doctrine, he talks about how the ancient church was wrestling with all the bits of data about, uh, say, the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that ultimately made sense and took into account all of those pieces of data was to view the Spirit as a member of the Godhead, co-equal with the Father and Son. And yet there's one God. Mm. And so you say, well, how does that work? We're st- we don't know. I've no. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody a, asked that a couple of weeks ago at Great Questions on a Monday night. They were like, "How can God be three in one?" And my answer was, "I have no idea." Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I would like that. to remind the audience that these are two doctors of theology. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, no, it's, I have no idea. But what I can comfort. tell you is, is that God has revealed himself. Mm -hmm. This is the way that he has revealed himself. And we're trying the best we can to understand it. And yet Isaiah 55 says that my ways are higher than your ways, mm -hmm. my thoughts higher than yours. And just as uh, the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, my thoughts higher than mm -hmm. yours. We can't fully understand God. If we could... Uh, we would be equal to him yeah. in terms of omniscience yeah. or knowledge. The fact is that there's a mystery. A good friend of mine, Ed Komaszewski, likes to speak about the Christian faith as grounded in history mm -hmm. and shrouded in mystery. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. It's a tension between the two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are certain points at which we can go and no further. Yeah, yeah. And I think a good theologian will recognize that. And understand that uh, I tell people around here when I'm like, I was with the Institute people this morning and I tell them, I'm like, Hey, if you're uncomfortable with tension in theology, then you're in the wrong game. Like you like get used to there being tension because it's not that mystery is like C.S. Lewis like to say, it's not that mystery is, is an absence of meaning. It's the presence of more meaning than you can comprehend. Exactly. And so you're, it's a, re a it's, it's a reaching more toward to a fuller understanding while understanding that you're never fully going to get there, which is crazy. Like the inscrutability of God that we would, uh, that's just a big word to say, like we'll continue even into eternity learning and about God and never actually get mm -hmm. to the end of him, which right. that's like a, right. Yeah. Boom! We know, we know that <laughs> so, so many attributes of God that are revealed in scripture and there are probably thousands more. Oh, yeah. That we have yeah. no idea. Yeah, that's maybe, right. Maybe every millennium, every million years is going to say, by the way, I'm also like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's a, play that for a while. Yeah, it's, an, it's a continual unveiling, and that doesn't stop. Right. Um, that's, right. Yeah, it's crazy. I know two things come to mind uh, when I think about doctrine, especially in regard to what we've been talking about. One is from G.K. Chesterton when he wrote his little book, Orthodoxy, which I would encourage everybody to pick up a copy of that. That's kind of one you need to have in your library. Mm -hmm. But uh, he said that he went on this journey of trying to figure out, hey, what do I believe, you know, and was toying around with everything and, and then finally realized that where he arrived was the place that Orthodox Christianity had always been, hmm. you know, and he's like, I, I tried to be this renegade, you know, to, to go and figure out what I believed. And then I ended up at the starting point, which was... Trinity, deity, humanity of Jesus, these central, essential things about Christianity. It's really interesting. You didn't have these universal creeds that talked about the Bible. Yeah, right. Mm. In fact, there was no council was... that determined which books were in the yeah, Bible. Yeah, that's right. Let alone what the nature of the Bible yeah. was. And the earliest councils, the ones you just named, the Bible in its final form that we have now didn't even exist. There was never any official council that said, these are the 27 right. books of the New Testament. At the time, just before the Council of Nicaea, Eusebius, in his uh, church history or ecclesiastical history, he was commissioned by Constantine to produce 50 Bibles for the capital city, mm. for uh, uh, Byzantium or Constantinople. And Eusebius had to figure out which books go yeah, into the Bible right, right. without any kind of a council. It just so happened that he was probably the best person in the 4th century for determining this because that was a fetish of his is to find out nice. what does the early church say about this. So he produces a Bible, and by the end of the 4th century, both in the East and the West, you have great theological scholars 
a Jerome and Athanasius who are saying, these are the books of the New Testament. Mm. But there was never any universal council that said these are the books of the New Testament. Yeah, right. Which is just fascinating. Yeah, which is why in the history of the church, and one of the reasons I said what I did is there was never a point where it was like, okay, everybody agrees on this. And I mean, the Reformation stirred that up and, mm. you know, and then you have the Catholic Church and what are they doing with the books there? Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it is interesting. You make the point that what they cared about was these core essential doctrines. And so when we think about how we formulate doctrine and what we should care about, what do we learn from the early church about how we should prioritize doctrine? I think they, they use the same deposit of revelation that we use, namely Scripture. But there was a certain assumption about Scripture that it's going to tell us the truth about God, mm. which is what we would call infallibility. The Bible is true in what it teaches, what it affirms about faith and practice. Mm. That's uh, infallibility. And I think the early church, the ancient church, believed strongly that the Bible was infallible. But their concern was not about whether the Bible was infallible. Their concern is, who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? Right. What did he do for us on the cross? Yeah, right. And I think that's a fascinating thing that sometimes, in fact, too often today, the evangelical church, especially in America, is preoccupied with that deposit of revelation far more than we are preoccupied with what that revelation is about, right. namely Jesus Christ. Yeah. Why is that? What changed? What shifted? Like why, why do we find ourselves there today? I think it started with the modernism versus fundamentalism debate about a century ago yep. where we started to get into these debates. And in American, that's why I specified American evangelicalism, it got tighter and tighter in terms of the, the doctrines that one must proclaim. So that today there is the Evangelical Theological Society, of which I'm a member, uh, and I've been a member for decades. But You've been the president. And, and I was the president once, yeah. yeah. Casual, it's fine. That, that didn't last long. <laughs> yeah, it didn't last long for anybody. So. Uh, that's true. But um, the Evangelical Theological Society has as its doctrinal foundation inerrancy and the Trinity and nothing else. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that they have high evangelicals who hold to inerrancy. But there are other evangelicals who don't hold to inerrancy. And there's uh, what's known as the Institute of Biblical Research or for Biblical Research, the IBR, where the fundamental doctrine there is infallibility. Mm. And so it, it allows people who say there may be some mistakes in what the Bible says, but there's no mistakes in what the Bible affirms that relates to faith or practice. Yeah, yeah. So when evangelicals are formulating their doctrine about what they think, hey, this is really important to us. Not everybody is formulating the same thing, which is why there's differences. It's why there's denominational divides. So uh, how, Thousands of them. Yeah, <laughs> right. So how should we think about that when we're thinking about our own set of priorities in regard to doctrine? I think there's a, a common misconception held by uh, lay people and even biblical scholars and students, and that is that all doctrines are created equal. The problem we have is you look at almost any doctrinal statement and they say, here's the 8, 10, 12, 50 things that we believe. 
but there's not a, a statement that says these are absolutely vital for spiritual health, or these are necessary to be a member of this church. In other words, there's... They're all linked together, yeah, like on the yeah. same page. And, and yeah. you just look at... You can go to any doctrinal statement. Mm-hmm. You don't see a thing of, here's first-level doctrine, second-level right. doctrine. Right. And, and also for evangelicals, they start with Scripture. They say, the Bible is the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. And therefore, what it says is true. And then from that, they build their doctrines. Now, I can understand that from a deductive presentation, but the way I start my doctrine is with Christ. Mm-hmm. My bibliology or doctrine of the Bible is grounded in my Christology yeah. and uh, looking at uh, who Jesus Christ is historically in the Gospels, I've come to the conclusion that he held a high view of the Scriptures mm-hmm. that would be at least the same as what we'd consider as uh, infallibility. Right. I would say wherever Jesus stands on Scripture, it's probably best that I stand right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's yeah. this is this is the difference between what I call two different kinds of stating Scripture views or doctrinal views. One is a domino view of doctrine. When you start with bibliology, I think you're in danger of creating that kind of a construct. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some who've said, well, if you lose inerrancy, then you're on a slippery slope, and you're on this slippery slope that eventually moves towards liberalism. The problem is if you start with inerrancy and have a doctrinal view that is uh, dominoes. But if you have an insulated view, a doctrinal taxonomy where Christ is at the center— and you build your theology on the basis of who Christ is, what he claimed, the historical evidence for the resurrection, then you can have a taxonomy that says, at some point I may dabble in whether inerrancy is true or not, but I am sure about who Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is. And we, we tend to draw the lines as this guy's a heretic because he doesn't hold to inerrancy. Yeah. But first of all, what is essential to believe in order to be saved? Right. That's tier one doctrine or your core doctrine. The second level is what is vital for spiritual health, not for spiritual life, but for spiritual health. Then you have a third level, which is what is important for other Christians, and where do I draw the line there? There's some things I can do with charismatics, some things I can do with Arminians, some things I can do with all millennials, Mm -hmm. but whether they are members of my church, that may be a different thing. Yeah, yeah. Especially Arminians. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's the final level, which is what are those things that we're just not going to debate about except Mm -hmm. just to make you talk? Mm -hmm. And here's what's interesting is a lot of evangelicals, I would call them really more fundamentalists, in the last few decades have claimed that a literal six-day creation Mm -hmm. is the tier one doctrine. I call it a level four doctrine. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And I don't know. Yeah. If you haven't uh, listened to our episode with Dick Averbeck on Genesis, we -hmm. talked about that and we'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I think what's interesting is we see in the early church that they cared a lot about Jesus, the nature of Jesus being fully God, fully man. They cared a lot about uh, Trinitarian doctrine. You have quite a few people who are writing a ton of stuff about this. And you have a lot of early apologists who are defending Orthodox Christianity against people who are attacking those core central things. They cared about right. that. They cared about Jesus. They cared about being Trinitarian. And then you see, like you said, around the turn of the 20th century, I call them the four horsemen. Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin. 
who all within a period of 80 years or so of each other are kind of like one, two, three, four, changing the landscape of the way things uh, are happening, the way the assumptions that people are making. And with the influence of guys like Frederick Schliermacher and people like that, you see this influence into the church in America where now all of a sudden the Bible is called into question. And you see the American evangelical church respond with fundamentalism, right? Um, which in its infancy, fundamentalism was a very natural response against what was perceived as an attack against the heart of Christianity. But what we have done over the last hundred years is that a lot of people in evangelical circles have no doctrinal taxonomy. So the mistake that liberalism has made is they've taken all of the things that belong in the core center and they've pushed them out into a fourth or fifth tier right. issue. Or like we just good to debate, but it really is not. We don't issue. know. Yeah. Like you can't know anything. But the mistake of fundamentalism is taking all of those fourth, fifth tier issues and pushing them into the center. Right. And it's really damaging. Yeah. Because I mean, I can't tell you the amount of people that I have run across just doing ministry, kind of in the trenches with people whose spiritual lives at the very least have been stunted, their growth has been stunted, and at the most has been significantly damaged by a lack of prioritizing their doctrine. And so they'll take an issue like, I just don't know if it's a six-day creation or not. So I'm not a Christian. And you're like, what the heck, man? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's despairing. (laughs) It is. And there's there's some people who say, if I don't hold to a literal six-day creation, I cannot be saved. And they just have to hang on to what they've been told before. It's hard to let go of that literal interpretation. Well, yeah, but ultimately it's crazy. Let me mention a a few things to kind of wrap up on some of these ideas. One is uh, Carl F.H. Henry, who was one of the architects of modern evangelicalism, really, really strong on inerrancy. He talked about what the 21st century might look like and what the next 20 and 30 years might look like. And he said, those evangelicals who do not hold to inerrancy have not slipped off the slope and gone into liberalism. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of evangelicals who hold to infallibility and other doctrines that are important, but not inerrancy. And we need to treat them as brothers and sisters. And he Mm -hmm. said, if we don't, then evangelicalism is going to shrivel up and just be a shadow group uh, in the future. It's almost prophetic what he had to say. Yeah. So I've heard you use the word inerrancy several times, and it's a word that comes up a lot in this kind of conversation. Help us understand what that means. Just give us a quick definition of inerrancy. Actually, that is a disputed thing. There are quite a few definitions out there. The definition I like to use of inerrancy is that the Bible is true in what it touches. I define infallibility as the Bible is true in what it teaches. Inerrancy goes beyond that to say it tells the truth about uh, historical facts, geographical facts, things along those lines. However, it's also culturally conditioned, historically Mm -hmm. conditioned. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of things like that that we need to take into account. Uh, Phenomenologically conditioned, like when we say the sun rises, the sun does not rise. And yet in newspapers today and on the the news channels, they'll say the sun will rise at 614 tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Well, somebody today could look at that and say, 
well, that's not literally true. Right. This must mm-hmm. be a broadcast that I can't trust at all. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be stupid yeah, to right, have that view. Right. The Bible is true in what it touches, but there are conditions along those lines as well. The difference between inerrancy and infallibility is that we're dealing with just what the Bible affirms as far as faith and practice. That's infallibility. Inerrancy goes beyond that to say it's true in history and geography and things mm-hmm. like that. Again, culturally conditioned. But I think at some point, if you deny everything about inerrancy, then you have a problem with history. Mm-hmm. And then you say, well, maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or maybe this didn't happen. So and a guy like uh, I. Howard Marshall at Aberdeen University mm-hmm. held to infallibility, but not inerrancy, but he talks about Luke, historian and theologian, yeah. and talks about yeah, yeah. how accurate Luke was mm-hmm. along these lines. Uh, because the overall presentation of what we get in Scripture is very, very yeah. trusting. So when you say a minor mistake, give us an example of what someone who would not hold to inerrancy would point at and say, eh, minor mistake. Uh, one has uh, been considered Luke 2.2 where it says uh, in the Net Bible, this was the first registration or census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Calling it the first registration or first census is problematic because this is talking about 4 BC. We know of a census by Quirinius in AD 6, and we know of no others Mm -hmm. historically. So did Luke make a mistake? There was a second, and this was in 4 BC when it was really AD 6. Uh, That's probably the most well-known problematic text for inerrancy Mm -hmm. in the whole Bible, Mm -hmm. or at least the New Testament. But it may not actually be an error. It's important for us to understand we should not go for the easiest, simplest solution that doesn't really account for the data. There are going to be places where I simply say, I don't know. And that's that's fair. Mm -hmm. I don't have to have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I can still be an evangelical even if I do not hold to inerrancy. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that this is a solvable uh, problem in our present uh, uh, understanding of the text, but at least it's one that I, I wrestle with. I think another one that I've wrestled with is, I think it's in Mark, where Jesus is talking about David going into the temple where he eats the showbread, and he says that it was during the time of Abiathar, the high priest, but... In the Old Testament, when Samuel talks about it, he uses Ahimelech, uh, a totally different dude. Yeah, First Samuel 21, and it's Mark 2.26. In Mark 2.26, Jesus said this happened when uh, these events took place when David and his men uh, ate the showbread yep, in the temple. Yep. He said when Abiathar was high priest. Well, one was a text-critical solution. There are a couple of old manuscripts that just drop out when Abiathar was whole priest, yeah. was the high priest. That's <laughs> also yeah. what Matthew and Luke do. They yeah. drop that line. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here was a place that Bart Ehrman, who's probably the leading adversary of the Christian faith in America, he did a paper in, a, in his master's program at Princeton for an evangelical professor on this, trying to prove that the Bible is inerrant, because he saw this as a, a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what drove Ehrman, within two or three paragraphs of his preface in uh, Misquoting Jesus, his popular book on the text Mm -hmm. of the New Testament, it drove him to say, well, maybe the Bible's just a a human book from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. In other words, his was a brittle faith Mm -hmm. that could be easily broken because I think he had a domino view of doctrine. Yeah, yeah. Where you knock over this one piece and it it all falls. It's a house of cards. So if our listeners are... Hearing this conversation saying, I don't think I have an order, a priority to my doctrine, 
that I just know what I think. I know what I believe. I didn't know I should order it somehow. What are tangible steps we can give to help them? Like, what can we do about it? Because if somebody's sitting there going, well, I'm that, I shouldn't say what I was just going to say. <laughs> right. We'll I, pause. I, I, get that. <laughs> uh, I think they do need to read theological statements of this is uh, what the Bible teaches about things, but from various positions. Ultimately, the bottom line is what the Roman Catholic Church, what the Greek or the Eastern Orthodox Church, and what Protestantism historically have held is that Jesus Christ, the theanthropic person, died on a cross, and in some sense that atoned for sin, he rose from the dead bodily, and he is coming back. And he is one of three persons in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. He atoned for sin because all of us humans are sinners. Mm -hmm. So there's that tier one doctrine. Yeah. I think that we must believe to be saved. Yeah. If you don't embrace that much, I'd say then uh, I don't think you have saving faith. Yeah. So there is a central core. The way I've described it to people is like a ham sandwich. In order to call something a ham sandwich, you have to have two pieces of bread and at least one piece of ham. You could have an open face. Uh, okay, ham sandwich. So one okay, piece of bread all right. I'll I'll, I'll I'll concede that there is such a thing as an open-faced ham corn sandwich. Beef. It can't all right, be called a ham sandwich. With corn <laughs> <beef>. <laughs> but which it's is like a Jewish attempt to try to taste. Something yeah, like that, that's good. Like I ham. stand corrected. Um, but <laughs> in regard to a ham sandwich, if you take away the bread and you take away the ham then you don't have a ham sandwich anymore. So Trinity, sin, the deity and humanity of Jesus, the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, the bodily resurrection, and the fact that Jesus is going to fix it all someday. If you take any of them away, you no longer have Christianity. Exactly. If you yeah. take those away, then it's like taking the bread and the ham away. You don't have a ham sandwich anymore. Yeah, I think that you've stated it well. Now, the modernism versus fundamentalism debate is a, a virtually a unique phenomenon in America. Yeah, right. Yeah. We had those debates here, but in Europe, evangelicalism thrived without those issues. Mm -hmm. Even today, uh, over a century later, you could go to a major university in the United Kingdom, and there could be evangelical professors in the same department with liberal professors, mm -hmm. and they get along fine. They, yeah. of course, will debate their points and argue, yeah, of course. but it's not as if to say... I, I can't be on this faculty because you're liberal. Mm -hmm. I can't be on mm -hmm. this faculty because you're evangelical. Yeah. But in America, uh, Bart Ehrman likes to say that there's no state school that has anybody who holds in their New Testament department uh, that Peter wrote Second Peter or Paul wrote First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. Yeah. He talks about these universities because that's funded by the government, and the government is not going to allow evangelicals to hold those kinds of positions. Yeah, yeah. But in the UK, you have Cambridge and Oxford and Aberdeen and St. Andrews and all these schools. Edinburgh, there's fine evangelicals who hold to those views. Uh, it's kind of a, a sleight of hand, I think, yeah. make it look like, gee, all scholars don't believe this. Yeah, totally. Now, the other thing I wanted to say is that the first time I went to the largest academic uh, conference of biblical scholars, the Society of Biblical Literature, I went there, uh, the annual meeting was in Dallas. There's, there's eight to 10,000 people that show up at these conferences now. And I thought, I'm going to hear what liberals think about the Bible, but I need to get, get into that. And my assumption was at that time, Anybody who doesn't hold to inerrancy is, I, I just thought they couldn't be a Christian right. unless they held to inerrancy. Yep. So I go to the conference and I hear a guy 
who I knew was a liberal, my understanding of a liberal scholar, and he's defending Lucan authorship of Acts. And I go and hear somebody else who was defending the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And I said, I think my construct is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And it taught me, it was that that first conference at SBL that taught me I need to come up with a doctrinal taxonomy mm. and how do I actually define a liberal? Mm-hmm. So my definition of a liberal is someone who does not affirm the essential doctrines for salvation. Mm-hmm. That's where I draw the yeah, line. Right. It's not a denial of inerrancy. Right. It's not a denial of infallibility. It's not even a denial of if somebody said Paul didn't write any of the books of the New Testament. That doesn't make that person a liberal. Yeah, right. But when somebody says Jesus is not God or there is no physical resurrection, then... It's a liberal. Yeah. yeah. Right. Then, <laughs> right. You're, then right. you're not saved. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. When people are denying the, the bread and the ham, then they can That's, no longer claim they have a ham sandwich. I'm not so sure I'd use ham sandwich for the Christian faith when we have a Jew who died. Uh, that's true, <laughs> yeah. I don't, okay, uh, yeah, lamb, but, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. lamb sandwich. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I get your yeah, point. Yeah, totally. Do you want to say anything, Karen? I don't know how to come back from a lamb sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, Dan, thanks for your time with us today. Stay tuned because next week we're going to unpack this further, talking about some of the doctrines that surround bibliology. We'll dig into those more. So uh, catch us next week. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you liked it, tell people. Tell people. Yeah. (laughs) We're thankful that you listened to us. Please keep listening. (laughs) Bye. Peace.